This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Shortly before midnight on September 1st, 2021, the Supreme Court refused a request to block enforcement of a Texas law known as SB8 that banned nearly all abortions in the state. For many people who don't follow the Supreme Court closely, the court's short unsigned order, which came without any oral arguments in the case, was their first real exposure to the process by which the court hears and resolves emergency appeals, part of what is sometimes known as the shadow docket. But the shadow docket is something that court watchers have been following and chronicling for some time now, and none more closely than Stephen Vladek, who is the Charles Allen Wright Chair in federal courts at the University of Texas School of Law. Professor Vladek has a new book out this month called The Shadow Docket, and he is here today to talk with us about the book. Steve Vladek, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It's a real treat. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, As they say, can you explain for our listeners exactly what you mean when you're talking about The Shadow Docket and where the name came from? Sure. Um, So the name, at least as used in reference to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, was coined by University of Chicago Professor Will Bode in 2015. Um, And Will meant it really the same way I use it, which is as just this evocative shorthand for basically everything the Supreme Court does through orders. Um, So we're used to, you know, covering the, I don't know, 60 plus big merits decisions. Oh, you're being so generous. 60 plus. Well, you know, I do 60-ish, the 60-ish merits decisions the Supreme Court hands down every year. You know, folks who follow the court know these are cases that get multiple rounds of briefing, they get argument, they get lengthy decisions that get broken down on SCOTUS blog and elsewhere. Um, Will's insight, you know, about eight years ago was that there's actually a lot of really important stuff that happens through other rulings by the court, through the the less well-covered, less widely noticed, less explained rulings by the court. And so Will meant it as this, you know, umbrella term for grants and denials of certiorari, for, you know, grants and denials of emergency relief, either a stay of a lower court decision or unstay of a lower court decision. Um, And basically everything other than the merits docket. And his point was that, like, we should pay more attention to what happens in the shadows not necessarily because it's bad, but because it's important. And it's it's part of telling a holistic story about the court as an institution. And so I think you've articulated to a certain extent, anticipated my next question, which is like, where did your interest come from? And then how did you decide to turn it into a book? Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, as, as you know, well, I've long been fascinated by the more arcane um, parts of, of the Supreme Court's workload and docket. So, you know, when Will sort of uh, uh, wrote about this in 2015, it was like uh, uh, old home week for me, but I, I really started to get interested in the uh, sort of a particular slice of this, which is what Justice Alito calls the emergency docket. Um, so stays and injunctions. When we saw this, what at least at first seemed to me like uptick in how often the court was being asked to and was agreeing to intervene in an emergency posture to issue stays or to vacate lower court stays early in the Trump administration. So you know, a really big early moment for me was the travel ban 2.0 litigation um, in the summer of 2017. 
and sort of I, I just I, I sort of started in the middle with the travel ban. And as we saw Amy starting that summer and later, the court repeatedly intervening to basically unfreeze Trump administration policies, I started tracking all these rulings. And, you know, it, it seemed to me the first thing we should do is just like not look at these one, one at a time, but actually build a data set of these rulings. And then as the data set got larger and larger, it seemed worth looking at whether this really was a difference um, and whether there was a real shift in what the court was doing through these orders in how often it was intervening. So that's when I started actually trying to work backwards and look historically at especially the emergency side of the shadow docket. And I guess the point where it really became clear to me that there was a book to write was when President Trump left office in January of 2021 and the court's behavior continued, which I think drove home to me at least the idea that this wasn't some evanescent Trump-specific phenomenon, it was actually something broader. And so that's really what impelled me to sort of, to want to tell the story of the court and the shadow docket in a way that was both historical, but also, I mean, I mean, this is probably the most important, but in a way that was accessible. So I think part of the issue with the unsigned, unexplained orders being important is it's really hard, even for lawyers, to, you know, come to an unsigned, unexplained order and understand its significance without a whole lot of context. And so I wanted to try to provide that context for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Yeah, I actually learned a lot reading the book when you sort of see it all laid out. Uh, you know, I will say also as someone who covered, I think, essentially all of the various and sundry orders, there was a certain element of PTSD involved, you know, sort of looking back at all of the different late night orders that uh, we got over the course of several years. Um, but so talk about the process. I'm going to step back for a second of writing the book. Like you have obviously written a ton. Like you look at the dictionary definition of prolific and there's like pictures of you and Rick Hudson. You know, you've written a gazillion law review articles, scholarly articles. You've edited, put together textbooks. And then, but you've also written a lot for the sort of more mainstream press. But this is your first like, book book, right? It is. is it like, how is it different to do that? <sighs> um, it's different in lots of ways. Um, and I think it, the differences are compounded by the fact that I wanted this book to be a trade book and not an academic book. And so, uh, you know, I, from the get-go, I wanted to write a book that was accessible to a popular audience, which meant I wanted the book to appeal to publishers on the on the sort of trade side of the of the street, not the academic side. And so that meant really from the get go, like having a much better idea of how I wanted to tell a story, as opposed to just how I wanted to unpack an academic legal argument. Right? You know, a law review article is often not that different from a brief, um, right? You, you, you state what your thesis is, and then you endeavor to prove your thesis. A book, especially one aimed at a, a sort of a popular audience, has to have a story. Or in this case, as you know, a lot of stories. Because you're trying to hold the reader's attention and you're trying to figure out how to weave themes and motifs into the chapters to hold a reader through a discussion of the difference between a stay and an injunction, a discussion of why certiorari before judgment is actually a big deal. And so I guess, Amy, for me, like the, the writing part was really fun. The planning part was the real sort of labor 
in trying to figure out what order the chapter should go in and trying to figure out what themes each chapter should hit on. You know, as you know from reading the book, there are sort of anecdotes at the beginning of each chapter or vignettes. Try to figure out which vignette made sense for which chapter. And so it was, you know, it was a much more sort of like a, a sort of three-dimensional chess than I'm used to when writing just sort of a, a brief for a court or a classic like law review article. And then at the same time, you are teaching, you are an analyst for CNN, you are the father of two young children. <laughs> there are only actually 24 hours in a day, even for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've 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 been very lucky in a couple of ways. One, you know, I have a a fantastic partner, um, Karen, who you know, you indeed, who is responsible for just about all of this, um, even indirectly. Um, and Karen, Karen has this amazing facility to understand when actually I need to be able to go sit in a room for two hours and write, and when I really don't. So that's been a huge part of this. The other thing is, I mean, for better or for worse. I am a person who writes fast when I'm excited. And so the more into a topic I am, the faster the words come out and the, the faster that it flows. And so, you know, one example just from the book, the, to me, the real hinge chapter in the book is chapter three about the death penalty. And I was stuck on that chapter for the better part of two or three weeks because I couldn't quite figure out what the fulcrum point was from the past to the present. And I, Amy, I remember we were actually at like an indoor play gym <laughs> when it just hit me what the what it was. Um, and, you know, it's like four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon and I make a couple of notes on my phone. Karen yells at me to put my phone away. And then we go home, we do dinner, you know, we do dinner, we do bedtime. And then I just go sit in front of my computer for about four hours and basically write the rest of the chapter because it hit. So I just it's it's something a little light bulb moment. Yeah. And I just I, I it's. It's a good thing in that, like, I'm able to work really quickly when that happens. It's a bad thing in that sometimes it doesn't happen and you're just sitting there banging your head into a wall. Mm -hmm. so I want to talk for a second about one of the chapters that came not long after the chapter on the death penalty. And that's a chapter on the COVID-19 pandemic and the COVID cases that came to the court on the shadow docket. Um, just sort of, can you just talk about how, in your view, the court's approach to those cases sort of reflects like how the approach to the shadow docket changed and what the effects were. Sure. Like I thought that, again, like even having covered those cases to sort of see it laid out like that, because, you know, we sort of, as a reporter, you don't necessarily sort of take the step back and look at the big picture. Yeah. I mean, the, the COVID cases are a remarkable data set in a couple of respects. The first thing I think is remarkable about them is that you can see exactly the moment when the court flips, right? Like there, you know, Justice Barrett's confirmation in late October 2020 has a far more immediate and profound effect on the sort of emergency side of the court's docket than it does on the merits docket, right? Her first public vote is the decisive vote, right, four minutes before Thanksgiving on, you know, the whatever that day was in November. I remember that well. Right. And, and, and so what happens in the COVID cases is the justices, I have to get technical for a second. So the classic form of emergency relief, for example, in like the Mifepristone case, is a stay of a lower court injunction. Basically, we are freezing the lower court decision for the duration of the appeal. In the COVID cases, what kept happening was lower courts were refusing to block 
COVID mitigation policies, especially in blue states, in New York and California, in New Jersey and Colorado. And so the litigants who went to the Supreme Court were actually asking for an even more extraordinary form of emergency relief. They were asking for an injunction pending appeal, which the court has long said requires an extra high showing, um, all this other stuff. The court doesn't grant those very often in like, I think the first 15 years of Chief Justice Roberts' tenure, the court granted four of them, um, and two of them were conditional. And so what's crazy in the COVID cases is overnight with Justice Barrett's confirmation, the court starts granting all of these emergency injunctions of COVID mitigation policies in blue states on religious liberty grounds that really had not been fully fleshed out in the merits docket. So it starts right the night before Thanksgiving when the court blocks um, New York State's COVID restrictions in a context in which they weren't even then in effect <laughs> against the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn. It keeps going all through December and January. And then there's this remarkable run of cases in February of 2021 involving California, where the court keeps blocking California and local California, California state and local California policies with no opinion. Like there's no majority opinion in any of these cases. But Amy, then the court starts sending other cases back to lower courts for reconsideration in light of the decision in the case with no majority opinion. So for the first time, we see the court treating even unsigned, unexplained orders as precedential. There's a ruling in late February where the court actually chastises the Ninth Circuit and says, you know, our decision, uh, the decision in this case is clearly dictated by our ruling in an earlier case where there was no majority opinion. And it culminates in early April in a case called Tandon versus Newsom. This was the one about whether uh, you could have people from more than three households in your home in California. The state had said no. And in Tandon, the court says, we're blocking this too by embracing a new theory of the free exercise clause, what, what free exercise scholars call the most favored nation theory of the free exercise clause. You know, I'm not a, a religion scholar. I don't have a particularly strong view on the merits or demerits of that theory. It was just a remarkable move for the court to embrace that theory on the shadow docket while it was sitting on a bunch of merits cases that also were asking the justices to expand religious liberty to overrule the 1990 ruling in Employment Division versus Smith. And I think, Amy, to me, the, the biggest canary in the coal mine here was Chief Justice Roberts, who I think was sympathetic to the challengers in almost all of these cases, but kept dissenting um, with the more liberal justices. Because when he would write to explain himself, he said, this is not the way we should be doing this. We should not be using emergency orders in a way that moves the law. And so it's really the COVID cases where you see in such short period of time, just how far the court is moving to make new law in a context in which the party's only supposed to be able to win if their rights were already, quote, indisputably clear, unquote. Um, and that to me, I think was, was, you know, I was already working on the book by that point, but like that was when it became really clear to me that this was about a whole lot more than just a series of you know, unique um, responses to the Trump administration. So you've actually sort of addressed my next question somewhat obliquely, so I'm gonna ask it a little bit more specifically. One of the responses to, or what sort of, I guess one of the criticisms of the criticisms of the shadow docket is essentially, you know, this is just 
complaints in effect about the results that we're reaching. You know, this is not a complaint about the process. What is your critique? If you had to boil it down, like what is your critique of the shadow docket and the justices use of it? Yeah, so I mean, I should I can't speak for other people. I, I try to be very clear in the book that this is not about bottom lines. I, I think there are cases where the court reached what I think is the right bottom line and did a pretty bad job of it. Um, and I think there are cases where the court reached what I think is the wrong bottom line, but at least didn't commit any of the procedural abuses that the book criticizes. So to sort of to crystallize the critique, right, I think it has four elements and I think they all interrelate. So element number one is that the court is using shadow docket orders, unsigned, unexplained orders in ways that have far broader consequences than what's historically true. We didn't used to see the shadow docket being a place for resolving whether nationwide or statewide policies would or would not be allowed to go into effect. For the better part of you know 35 years, the heart of the shadow docket was just last minute applications in death cases. So number one, right, using it in ways that have broader impacts. Number two, um, intervening, right, like upsetting the status quo, changing the law on the ground far more often than ever before. Um, right? I mean, we, I track this in, in the book, you know, the first 10 or 15 years of Chief Justice Roberts' tenure, the average is like seven to 10 grants of emergency relief per term. And again, most of those are in capital cases. That blows up into the 20s. Um, starting in 2017 and 2018. That's, you know, a small number in absolute terms, but a pretty big number for this court. Third, right, so you've got bigger impacts, they're doing it more often. Number three, they're doing it in ways that are inconsistent, where, you know, the same sort of justifications that would support all the times that the court intervenes to allow the Trump administration to carry out its immigration policies, ought to support similar interventions to allow the Biden administration to carry out its immigration policies. And yet the opposite has been the case. The court has not stayed lower court injunctions of Biden immigration policies, even when Amy, as in the MPP case, the court ultimately ruled for the Biden administration on the merits. Um, and then fourth, right, and this is the last piece, the court is both acting like and in some cases, formally stating that these rulings are precedential. And to me, it's, it's the four of those things together that are really the, the nub of the problem, because you basically have the court without justification intervening more in ways that are qualitatively more significant, in ways that are inconsistent as a matter of neutral legal principles, and in ways that are creating significant downstream effects that we normally don't think of unsigned, unexplained orders creating. That to me is the, is the heart of the critique when you look at it holistically. All right, so I'm gonna ask you then to talk about those, that sort of critique in light of a recent shadow docket ruling that is not in the book. And that is the court's order last month allowing Mifepristone to remain broadly available while a challenge to the FDA's approval of the drug continues in the lower court. And just so we're all on the same page, mifepristone is one of two drugs used in medication abortions, which account for over half of all abortions in the U.S. each year. And a federal district judge in Texas suspended the FDA's approval of the drug. The FDA approved it, I think, in 2000. And the Biden administration came to the Supreme Court asking the justices to put that judge's ruling 
on hold. Um, and the justices did. Um, without any explanation. Without any explanation. And so Justice Alito was one of the justices who dissented. Um, we know that Justice Thomas also dissented, although he did not join Justice Alito's opinion. And one of the things, sort of his opening criticism was, hey, you know, my colleagues, and he cites, uh, you know, opinions from Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, a concurrent opinion by Justice Barrett, have criticized us in the past for issuing these kinds of cursory unsigned orders, but that's exactly what they just did, you know, and he's saying, I think, like, you know, that Justice Kagan doesn't like the unsigned orders when she doesn't like the results, but apparently it's fine when she likes the results. Does he have a point? So there, there's, a, yeah. So no, <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's first, first we should say, I mean, and Alito said, therefore I'm gonna be a hypocrite too, um, right? I mean, I, I think that the two wrongs make a right philosophy is a weird one to, to, to publicly concede. But um, I think there are problems with the court's Mifepristone ruling, but I actually think they're, they, they sort of pale in comparison to the kind of behavior that I've been critical of. Um, so the Mifepristone ruling, right? The court says nothing. Um, I think that's a problem. Right. That to me, when the court is intervening and is granting emergency relief, it ought to provide some explanation as to why. But in context, right, the court was intervening to preserve the status quo. Right. Like the in context, what the court was doing in the Mifepristone case was basically ensuring that what had been the law for 23 years was going to remain the law until there was a conclusive resolution of the dispute. And if that's the yardstick then the context in which Alito is accusing the justices of being hypocrites don't line up, right? So in the SB8 case, the argument for intervention was to preserve the status quo, is to prevent this six-week abortion ban from going into effect, right? Um, that to me is sort of, so the, the criticism that Justice Alito launched both in his Mifepristone dissent, and Amy, as you know, in his speech at Notre Dame Law School um, last September, or September 2021, is basically that like, People like me think all emergency intervention is bad. Um, and that's just not true. Like there are gonna be cases where the court has to intervene. I would prefer if the court would explain itself better, but just the mere fact that the court is intervening is not ever the problem by itself. And at least I have never suggested otherwise, even if maybe some other folks have been less um, nuanced, right? In some of their critiques. So one of the things that the justices have done a, a couple of times since the SB8 order in September of 2021 has have been to fast track cases rather than just issuing the unsigned order in the middle of the night they say okay we're going to expedite oral argument and a decision they did it you know with SB8 a, a little while later they did it with the, the, student, Biden the student loan cases vaccine mandate with yep. student loan cases do you think that's a response to the public criticism? I do. I mean, I, I actually think there are a number of responses to the public criticism, all of which suggest that the justices are reacting, are, are taking at least some of the criticism seriously. Um, and, and we should be clear, I mean, Amy, I think when we talk about the justices, I mean, obviously, I don't think that includes Justice Alito, but, but I do think that you can see a shift in at least how Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett have been voting publicly anyway in these contexts. Um, and so I think we've seen a couple things. One, yes, the court is fast tracking many more cases onto the merits docket. 
Um, right, certiorari before judgment, when the court is basically taking up a merits appeal before the Court of Appeals has even ruled. From August 2004 to February 2019, the court doesn't grant cert before judgment once. Um, since February 2019, it's granted it 19 times. Um, so I think, yes, yeah, some of this is the court hustling cases onto the merits docket to avoid having to resolve them, right, in the sort of truncated process of the shadow docket. Um, I think number two, right, the court has actually formalized procedures on the shadow docket for the first time with regard to the filing of amicus briefs, a friend of the court briefs. That seems technical and weird, but I think it's an interesting concession that there ought to be more formalized procedures here. But the third point, and I think this is what I thought was the most revealing moment in Alito's dissent in the Mifepristone case, is there's this cryptic concurrence by Justice Barrett um, in an October 2021 case about the COVID vaccine mandate for Maine healthcare workers, right? Where the court denied emergency relief over a pretty angsty dissent from Thomas Alito and Gorsuch. Um, and where Barrett writes this concurrence that basically says something like, just because the applicants have made out the criteria for emergency relief doesn't mean we have to grant it. Um, and that granting emergency relief is actually an exercise of our discretion, just the way that granting certiorari is an exercise of our discretion. Now, I mean, Amy, as you know, that opinion says nothing at all about what's going to bind um, or, or guide the justice's exercise of their discretion. But if you look at the data, right, since that opinion, the number of grants has gone way down. The number of cases in which Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, or at least some combination of those three, are publicly dissenting has gone way up. And so I actually think that, you know, there's at least a correlation between the loud, sustained public backlash that happened after the SB8 ruling in September 2021, and at least the behavior of some of the justices, not in all of these cases, but at least in many of them. That also, I think, helps to explain the Mifepristone ruling as well. So speaking of the public criticism, you are one of the relatively small group of law professors who also litigate before the court. And by litigate, I mean, you know, not only file amicus briefs, but actively argue before the court. You obviously have not pulled any punches worrying that your criticism of the court might somehow affect your work there. I mean, I, you know, Amy, I, I worry about it a lot, but I also just think that I have to be true to the things I believe in. Um, you know, I have the luxury of not having sort of standing clients whose interests I'm responsible for. I have the luxury of being able to pick and choose cases on an ad hoc basis. But one of the things I talk to folks about anytime we're having a conversation about whether I should be involved in the case is that, you know, I, I am, for better or for worse now, I think something of a known quantity. And, you know, I hope that no one at the court is looking at my name on a brief and saying, oh, well, toss that one. <laughs> um, that would be pretty sad if that's what was happening. But, you know, you got to say what you believe, um, especially if you're an academic. And I'm an academic first. And so, you know, it's, it's great to be able to try to practice on the side. But if the cost of this work is you know not being able to do as much litigation work in the Supreme Court. I think it's just the unnecessary cost of doing business at this point. What do you think we're going to see on the shadow docket from the shadow docket going forward? Like, do you think that the current incarnation is here to stay? Um, 
So, I mean, I think it's already changed, you know, in the ways that we just discussed. I, I think that the core, I, I don't think we are going to see anytime soon what we saw in 2020 and 2021, when it seemed like every week the court was doing something else significant through unsigned, unexplained orders on the shadow docket. But I also think like we're still seeing, Amy, even this term, right, you know, flashes of some of the what I think of as the bad problematic behavior um, right after Christmas, the five to four unsigned, unexplained order in the Title 42 case, right? The net effect of which was to basically keep on the books for an additional four and a half months, um, an immigration policy that no one was seriously defending anymore, right? Where even Justice Gorsuch is provoked into joining the liberals in dissent. You know, I, I think we're likely to see fewer of those going forward, but I still think we're gonna see some of them. But, but also there's a broader point here, and this is where I think the book tries to zoom out at the end, which is that the shadow docket by itself is, I think, a really important part of understanding the Supreme Court. But it's also a symptom of what to me is a broader problem, which is, I think, also showing its head over and over again right now in all of these swirling discussions about ethics um, and the court, which is just how far the court has departed, and, I, and not just the court, just how far Congress has departed from what was historically a pretty dynamic inner branch conversation about the work of the court, um, right? That I think, you know, you can tell a story and the book tries to tell a story that for the better part of its first 200 years as an institution, the court was actively participating in a dialogue about what its docket ought to look like. Um, and that dialogue involved Congress regularly adding to or taking away from the court's docket. And really, Amy, since 1988, that conversation has died. And I think that's that's responsible. You know, we joked earlier about how few merits cases the court is hearing these days. I think that's a symptom of this disease. I think the you know the aggressive expansion and activity on the shadow docket is a symptom of this disease. And I think a lot of the accountability stuff is a symptom of this disease. So you know, even if the sort of the reaction to the shadow docket is all right, we'll 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 chill out a bit and we'll slow down. The broader problem here is not going to be solved by the justices. Um, right. The broader problem here requires, I think, reinstitution of that dialogue and that dynamic. And I think given our current political climate, that's a pretty uphill climb, but one that I think is worth trying. That was actually the next question that I was going to ask you. We're recording this on Thursday, May 4th, and it was just a couple of days ago that the Senate Judiciary Committee held hearings on potential ethics reform for the Supreme Court. And, you know, there certainly did not seem to be any consensus around ethics reform and the opponents of it, in fact, questioned, you know, whether or not there was anything that Congress could do. Um, but, it, you know, it doesn't seem necessarily that it would matter because there's no appetite from Congress. So, you know, it does seem like we're in a little bit of a stalemate that the justices don't have the appetite to do it, and neither does Congress. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I, it it certainly feels like that today, um, as we're sitting here recording this. It's felt like that for the last couple of months. I guess to me, you know, maybe part of the story of the shadow docket is that we shouldn't be totally fatalistic about public pressure being a relevant check on the court as an institution. I mean, I really do think that there's at least strong circumstantial evidence that the justices, or at least some of them, have moderated their behavior as public critiques have sharpened about what's wrong with the shadow docket. 
maybe that will also uh, uh, seep over into other parts of the court's work. I guess, you know, the other piece of the story, though, is getting the institutional sort of reform conversation off the ground is always going to be a slow, heavy lift with a lot of dead weight to overcome. And I guess I just think that the more we're having conversations like this one, um, and the more that, you know, Amy, people like you and I are talking about the court in institutionalist terms and not just as the sum total of its merits decisions, which I think was uh, you know, something that I think too many folks had sort of a, a trap we had fallen into for too long of a time. I, I, my hope is that, you know, at least slowly, one of two things will happen, right? Either um, there really will be a groundswell, even for incredibly modest institutional reforms that are not actually trying to take power away from the current conservative majority, expanding the court's docket. I don't know how you could oppose that as taking power away from the court, right? Creating some kind of internal mechanism within the court to enforce or at least oversee ethics compliance. Not sure how that's taking power away from the court. So maybe it starts there or, right, more people in the public become convinced that a court that is this unchecked and a court that is this unaccountable is a court that maybe we ought to listen to a little bit less. Those are both, you know, really, really long term, slow burning conversations. But I just think the key is trying to invest the public in having that conversation. Um, and that's part of why I wanted to write a book that was directed toward, you know, a popular audience as much as a legal one. Well, when any of those things happen, then you can do an update to your book. <laughs> well, this is this is one of I mean, you mentioned the Mifepristone case. I mean, one of the problems with writing, a, especially with writing a, a trade book, is you know, with the the sort of the 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 closing day, the the last day on which I was allowed to make any changes whatsoever was like last October. Um, and so, oh, goodness. so here I am, like desperately hoping that you know there isn't some opinion where the court's like, we repudiate our use of the shadow docket for the last five years. <laughs> Um, I, I don't think you're going to worry about that one. But what's next for you? What is next? Um, whew, next is some sleep. Well deserved. Um, yeah, we'll see. Um, I, you know, I, I really have enjoyed writing this book, but I really haven't enjoyed writing about current events because current events change a lot. So I, I'm currently toying with an idea about doing a book on the election of 1864. Um, pretty sure that one's over. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it, it, that might sound like totally disconnected from the Supreme Court. And for the most part, it is. There's actually a fun little Tawny story in there. But I, I think there's a really cool story to tell about that election, about democratic resilience, um, about, you know, a democracy holding a national election in the middle of a civil war, about, you know, Lincoln being convinced he was going to lose and taking steps to try to mitigate the effects, um, about the, tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of war Democrats who put country over party by voting to reelect Lincoln. Um, you know, I, I haven't I don't quite have the through line yet, but I just feel like it's, you know, we tell stories about these canonical presidential elections. And for various reasons, 1864 has never been part of that canon. And I really think it ought to be because, you know, the election of 1864 kind of saved the country. Um, and maybe given all the negativity and um, cynicism, right, in our contemporary discourse, maybe a, a story about a time we got something right might actually be a good one to tell. I'll buy that book. And That's one. Everyone else should buy The Shadow Docket by Steve Laddick. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Steve Laddick at the University of Texas Law School and the author of The Shadow Docket. Thanks, Amy. I really appreciate you having me on. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. 
We're recording only intermittently these days, but we hope we'll be back again soon. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks very much to our producer, Eleanor Erskine.